one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, The Healthy Rebellion Radio, his books, and seminars. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He serves on the board of directors and advisors for Specialty Health, Inc., the Chickasaw Nation's Unconcerned Life Initiative, and a number of innovative startups with a focus on health and sustainability. Rob holds a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and is a former California state powerlifting champion who had a 565-pound squat, 345-pound bench, 565-pound deadlift, and is a 6-0 amateur kickboxer. Wolf has provided seminars in nutrition and strength and conditioning to a number of entities, including NASA, Naval, Naval Special Warfare, and the Canadian Light Infantry and the United States Marine Corps. Rob lives in Montana with his wife, Nikki, and his daughters, Zoe and Sagan. You can learn more about Rob's amazing electrolyte supplement at drinklmnt.com, and you can follow all of his upcoming projects and products which are available at robwolf.com, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com. And now, without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show with my man, Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Biohacking Secrets Show. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Honored to have you. I have a delicious orange flavored element drink here that is um, one of the products that you've created. And maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about it because I've been I've been addicted to these things. I'm I, I mentioned before we started recording. I'm good for three to five a day. And, yeah, the, uh, the the cocaine yeah. really facilitates that. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a longish story now. I'll try to be brief, but I've eaten pretty low carb for 23, 24 years now. And that works great for me for most things other than like jujitsu and some kind of higher intensity, uh, you know, exercise type stuff. But I just kind of thought that that was my lot in life. Like this was, you know, the, the trade-off that I had to have, uh, you know, for like good digestive health. Cause I had ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing a surgery and immunosuppressant drugs like 24 years ago. And this shift to uh, kind of lower carb ancestral type diet basically healed that process. Um, but I've just continued to tinker and fiddle and, and look for, for options. And I found a couple of guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who are the, uh, the founders of a, a movement called keto gains, which is, uh, it's kind of a boot camp intervention where they teach people appropriate protein, ketogenic diets. They have smart strength and conditioning and like the results that people get from a body composition perspective are just stunning. Like they're really, really impressive, really uh, know what they're doing. And I noticed that they had some people that were doing jujitsu and doing some CrossFit at a pretty high level and following what they were recommending. And I was kind of like, ah, oh, there's something interesting here. Like they're 
they're doing something interesting. So I, I chatted with these guys and kind of showed them what I was up to. And they were like, yeah, your, your diet looks pretty good, you know, as far as protein, carbs, fat, but you probably need more electrolytes, specifically sodium. And because these guys are smarter than I am, it took me a good year to listen to them. Because whenever you have a coach and your coach tells you to do something, of course, you never do it the first time they tell you to do it. You know, you got to wait and suffer and flail and struggle and everything. But I, I finally followed the basic recommendations that they had, which was try to get at least five grams of sodium a, a, per day from like all sources, dietary sources, supplemental, the the whole nine yards. And when I did that, it was just magic. Like I had this low gear at, at jujitsu and my sleep was better. And like all this other stuff was just dramatically improved. And the crowd that I serve tends to be kind of geeked out on lower carb diets. And when I was looking at the areas that they struggled, I'm like, oh my God, all of these people that I'm, I'm trying to serve probably need more electrolytes and more sodium and all this stuff. So it, we started this as a freemium option. It was basically make your own keto aid, you know, drink. And it, it was a recipe for take this much sodium and this much potassium and this much uh, magnesium and mix it all together and do some lemon juice and stevia and shake it up. And, you know, there you go. And when we released that thing about six months later, we had like a half million downloads of it. Like it just went like wildfire. And the feedback we had was amazing. People were reporting that they just felt great and like sleep stuff was improved and all these, you know, good things were happening. And then the folks that had done this freemium thing, they said, Hey, why don't you guys do a convenience play? Like this is all well and good, but like traveling with three bags of white powder and having TSA want to do a body cavity check on people wasn't, wasn't cool. And so it was literally the people following us who had done this this, you know, make it yourself thing that they convinced us to try doing a, a, a stick pack deal. And that's, uh, we launched three years ago. And I think Element is one of the fastest growing health and wellness companies in the world right now. Like it's just, just going like crazy. And I, I think that we really identified like a legit need for people and, and uh, the stuff tastes pretty good and it's convenient. And, you know, that, that's the kind of 30,000 foot view story on the whole thing. Yeah, you guys did a great job. I mean, the the raspberry flavor, the watermelon flavor, the orange flavor. I love all of them. And um, and it, it's you know, as someone that that is conscious to stay hydrated without diluting my own electrolytes. You know, yep. there's I think there's a lot of people that are over hydrating um, based on based on perhaps uh, poor advice. But this it makes it enjoyable to drink water too where, yep. you know, having a little bit of flavor in there, that's one of the things that many people miss when, when, you know, shifting away from juices and sodas and less healthy right. options is they're like, okay, it's, it's, it's not hyper palatable or exciting to my brain. I don't enjoy right. this as much as, as much as I did before. Um, let's kind of talk a bit about the demonization of sodium. Cause that's something that all of us grew up on. And, and there's still perhaps probably not our listener, not too many of our listeners, but perhaps some people that still, that still subscribe to that. And then how our need for sodium and, and electrolytes shifts on these uh, paleo and ketogenic nutritional templates. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it's interesting because on the one hand, the demonization of sodium is both completely accurate and completely inaccurate. It, it's accurate in that 
sodium is a player in hypertension, elevated blood pressure, and hypertension is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. The problem that arises, though, is that it doesn't really matter how much sodium you consume if you end up with hypertension. Uh, because it's mainly driven by hyperinsulinism, by chronically elevated insulin levels, which is more driven by over-consuming calories and, and in particular over-consuming refined carbohydrates. So when insulin levels go up, then we tend to retain sodium because we also release a hormone called aldosterone, which causes us to, to hold on to sodium. And what, what's kind of crazy in this is that there have been really well done randomized con con controlled trials, like gold standard science looking at low sodium intake for people with hypertension, and it just doesn't bring down their blood pressure that much. It'll bring it down a little bit. And then the flip side is like these, these folks, uh, sodium sensitive hyper responders, if they eat a really salty meal, their blood pressure will definitely go up and then it will tend to go back down to a, a, a chronically elevated baseline. But if, if sodium was the driver, then simply removing sodium would, would be the solution, but it's not. It's kind of a, a bystander. So, you know, this is where we've been in this weird spot where we know that sodium is important in this story. It definitely is a factor in hypertension, but it's not the driving factor. And ironically, this is where like low-carb diets oftentimes get, get almost made fun of. It's like, oh, well, you're going to pee like crazy the first you know five days you're on that. And it's like, yeah, because you're chronically elevated insulin levels and all the inflammation that you have that causes you to retain sodium and water is being released. And so you're kind of peeing your way out of cardiovascular disease in that, that circumstance. And this tends to be what happens when uh, two things happen when people improve their diet. And this, this doesn't have to be low carb. It doesn't have to be paleo, but people generally get the largest amount of sodium dietarily from processed foods. And when people are eating a highly processed food diet, it just comes hand hand in glove, you know, that, that uh, processed foods have typically a lot of sodium. So if you shift towards paleo or vegan or Mediterranean or anything that is minimally processed foods, you are going to dramatically reduce the, the intake of your sodium. Now, this might be kind of good in some ways because uh, with shifting towards minimally processed foods, we also tend to reduce our glycemic load and also our calorie load. And so these problems of, you know, chronically overeating and being insulin resistant, we can start reversing those things. So for some people, that's going to be really good. But at some point, the folks that were hypertensive are going to be normotensive. They're going to have normal blood pressure. And then they may start having problems with eating low carb or eating a minimally processed diet. And that they'll go from like seated to standing and they'll get the room spins or they try to exercise and they, it, it feels like their heart is beating like three times faster than it should at any given work output. And these are all signs and symptoms of inadequate sodium levels of hyponatremia. Mm. So then at some point, folks need to start reintroducing more sodium, particularly in, in the lower the carbohydrate intake, typically the more they need to do that. There's this process called the naturesis of fasting. Basically, we lose sodium when we begin to fast or we're in a low carbohydrate state. And again, this can be true if somebody's eating a vegan diet. You know, they go from overeating standard American diet 
They go to a vegan diet. The vegan diet is very low in sodium. They tend to decrease their total insulin load because they're not overeating. And then at some point, these folks will probably benefit from increasing the amount of sodium that they consume. Usually a, a safe spot for most people to be as a, a starting point is about five grams of sodium per day. Some people may need double that and even a little bit more, but that's a pretty good spot for most people to be. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I'm curious because there's there's a lot of talk in the health and, and natural wellness community about adrenal fatigue mm -hmm. and some of the symptoms that sort of mirror low sodium um, are also attributed to adrenal fatigue. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious kind of your thoughts on that relationship and how many people that think their adrenals are jacked just need more sodium. <sighs> A ton of them. And I think that like the, uh, like thyroid issues, like some people will uh, change dietary practices. Now you can tank thyroid from going too low calorie for too long and whatnot, mm -hmm. but you know, like low carb diets have oftentimes been associated with these kind of, uh, thyroid dysregulatory issues and, and low thyroid. But when you look into the physiology, low Inadequate sodium tends to cause a stress response in the body. We will release cortisol, we'll release epinephrine. And part of what those hormones do is it's another mechanism for us to retain sodium. So then it, it, it's these alternate methods to retain sodium because aldosterone is, is low in a low-carb environment and whatnot. So it's finding these alternate directions. But I think so much of that, like, HPTA axis dysregulation, uh, uh, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal issues. I don't know if it's 90% or 95%, but I think a massive chunk of it is, is you know, overly aggressive calorie curtailment, uh, inadequate protein, and then really uh, underconsumption of, of sodium is, is just this huge thing. And I know that that's self-serving for the guy that's like a co-founder of a, a company that's selling people salt, but it, it's just uh, it, an interesting piece to this is if somebody is put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, you know, for like epilepsy, for example, mm -hmm. that dietitian will by hook or by crook, make sure that the person gets at least five grams of sodium per day. And what's interesting is when you look at the medically supervised folks that are, are managed specifically for a ketogenic diet, it, it's well understood the whole naturesis of fasting. And, and you don't see in the medical literature like this huge incidence of what we, you know, this HBTA axis dysregulation, like adrenal fatigue, like it's just not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a thing when you look at pop culture recommendations around low carb diets. And I, I was guilty of this. Like I was never afraid of sodium, but I didn't fully appreciate the way that my friends Tyler and Louise did how critical and non-negotiable sodium is it, it, in particular in a low carb environment. Yeah. And there's all these other things that kind of bring you to the same spot. Like so much of what we see as like overreaching, overtraining, God, if it doesn't look a whole lot like, like inadequate sodium intake. And then mm -hmm. when people start addressing sodium intake properly, you can still certainly overtrain, but if people find that their work capacity is increased and the recovery is improved and their sleep is, is better. Like their heart rate variability scores improve when their sodium levels are, are on point. So I think there's a lot of different things that get attributed to 
too low of carb, too much exercise, and it may actually be inadequate sodium as, as kind of a, the, the inadequate sodium is introducing a degree of stress that then makes you more prone to having problems with the low carb diet or the, the exercise or, or the flip side is if you have adequate sodium, then you have more capacity to exercise more or handle the low carb diet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see it a lot where when people introduce time-restricted eating or they get on a, a paleo or a vegan or a ketogenic nutritional template, they start uh, working out. You know, they're adding all of these acute stressors, but at a certain point, it's like depending on their recoverability and their capacity to handle stress, they can hit this, this tipping point where these acute stressors become chronic stressors, yep. especially if multiple of these interventions also deplete sodium and electrolytes. And, um, and, and there's, you know, there's even a good amount of evidence to suggest that the, the wireless electricity in our world has increases our demand of, of electrolytes and sodium mm -hmm. in order to buffer some of the cellular stress that, 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 that can cause. Um, so it is, it is important to be conscientious of like, that more is not necessarily better and stacking too many of these interventions too fast without being conscientious of your electrolyte and sodium balance and, and, and some of these things are not paying attention to the signs and symptoms, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, um, you know, can, can lead to chronic problems, so which, which kind of yep. begs my next question, like how, you know, frequent urination, of course, that's, that's one of them. And, and, and something that a lot of people, when they start cleaning up their diet, they're, you know, all of a sudden they're like, I don't know if I need to get my prostate checked, but I'm going to the bathroom like five times a night. Right. Um, and, uh, what, what are some of the signs and symptoms to look out for that could indicate that someone is, uh, low sodium needs so, more lethargy, fatigue, brain fog are, are some pretty clear, uh, problems, uh, elevated heart rate, you know, it, it kind of a modest work output, or like if you're used to training and, uh, say like you wear a, a heart rate band, or if you just kind of pay attention to how you're feeling, you're like, Oh my God, this hill feels particularly hard today. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, it will take your, your exercise tolerance and decrease it. If we have inadequate sodium, and then the, the really late stage on this stuff is cramping. You know, people start mm -hmm. getting, I do jujitsu and like the toe cramp deal is, is this thing yeah. that is just endemic in jujitsu, but you are, one is so far gone by the time you start cramping because you've gone through a period of time where you've been electrolyte deficient such that you clearly have decreased uh, cognitive performance, fine motor skills, you usually have some brain fog, lethargy, fatigue, and, and all those things happen earlier. So those more subtle and somewhat subjective, you know, things are really the, the canary in the coal mine and the, the beginning of this stuff. And it, it's, um, it, it's challenging at first to get people in their bodies enough to just pay attention to like, how do you feel? But where I used to attribute like the mid afternoon kind of energy slump, even while eating low carb, I was like, oh, it's like low blood sugar, or it's this or it's that. I started wearing a continuous glucose monitor and my blood sugar mm. was just, it, it, it was rock solid. It didn't change. And I'm like, well, what the hell is going on? And then I tried doing some electrolytes and I felt immediately better. And it was literally like a light switch was flipped. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I'm inadequate sodium and I'm starting down this path of just feeling bad because every 
every process in our body is driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like that is the, the basic currency of energy production via, you know, APT, ATP manufacturing. So it's not surprising that if our sodium potassium pumps get off by a little bit, that we're going to feel off. And uh, uh, electrolytes and pH are probably the most tightly regulated physiological processes in the body. And they're, they're tightly regulated because if it go, if either of them go a little higher, a little low for too, too long or too great a magnitude, we can get very sick or we can die from it. So it's, uh, you know, we notice, uh, this dysregulation, we, we feel it, but it's funny. Um, I've been aware of this stuff now for about five years, like really acutely aware of this, this need and this problem, but I cannot tell you how many times I've come home from training or, or doing work or whatever. And my wife looks at me and she's like, have you had enough electrolytes today? And I'm like, damn you, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm a co-owner of the company and I'm, I'm still like shitting the bed on, on just this is, this putting is this stuff in it in a jug and drinking it, you know, yeah, I, I yeah. I'm, oh, I'm too busy or I, I, it can't be that thing. And then I'll, I'll go over and mix them up or, or I'll do like some salami and cheese or something, a really salty meal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I feel fine now, you know? Yeah. So yeah. 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 It's a big problem. That's, that's funny. That's like a, a mom slash wife 2.0 question. Oh, totally, man. It's just, <laughs> she's, she's deadly with that. Yeah. Yeah. None of us are born with the warrior spirit. It is taught and trained. On the wrestling mats of Iowa, the mountains of Dagestan, and in homes across the world. Courage is learned from mentors and elders. Bravery is inoculated by a regimen of strategic training and discipline. This discipline culminates when the warrior has garnered the skill set to do what most men can't or won't when he willingly runs into the fires of initiation because that is where his people need him. We feel disconnected when we chase the false idols of money, material possessions, and comfort. But true purpose and freedom are earned by training those parts of ourselves from which most men run. Some heavy shit is coming down, brothers. And those who rise to accept this call will go through it and win. The body, mind, and spirit are your instruments of victory. One cannot be properly trained while ignoring the other two. Our elite one-on-one coaching program is this training and your call to rise. Whether you're trying to build muscle, burn fat as fast as possible, upgrade your brain, reclaim your health, or unleash the warrior within, I will build you a personalized game plan to take your body, mind, and spirit to their true potential. At biohackercoaching.com, you will tap into the most cutting-edge health, anti-aging, and transformation protocols personalized exclusively for you to radically enhance your physical and mental performance. You'll have me in your corner as your coach and guide. With detailed instructions and advanced custom techniques to optimize your life, weaponize your body, and bulletproof your mind so that you achieve your goals as fast and safe as humanly possible. You'll discover science-derived lifestyle hacks I've only shared with our roster of Olympic gold medalists, world-class athletes, U.S. Special Forces, high-level businessmen, and super achievers from all walks of life, people ruthlessly committed to unlocking their ultimate capabilities. 
This program is for beginners, intermediate, and advanced fitness levels and provides everything you need to optimize your body, mind, and spirit's full capacity. We run labs and and blood work first because we believe in testing, not guessing. Then we use those data points to build you a unique, personalized program to correct underlying challenges and transform you into the man or woman you're here to become. Whether you're wanting to get shredded, add pounds of lean muscle, sharpen your mental focus and brain power, or heal, everything you need is included, and you'll have me in your corner holding you accountable and guiding you through every step of the way. Because this isn't something I outsource to other coaches who may not have the skill set or experience you need, I can only work with five men each month. To grab a time for us to speak and determine if our Apex coaching program is a fit, go to Biohacker Coaching, B I O H A C K E R C O A C H I N G dot com, and book a time for you and I to discuss your goals. Because we receive 50 to 100 applications each month for these five spots, if you'd like to request your application gets moved to the top of the list, send me a text message to my personal phone at 847-989-3743 and let me know why you're ready to change your life. This is elite, personalized training at the highest level with zero guesswork. Only a small handful of people get this level of access to me and these teachings. If you've resonated with this, go to biohackercoaching.com now and fill out the short application form to grab a time for us to connect. Strength and honor. The other thing that I wanted to kind of talk about before we kind of close out on elements and for guys that are listening, uh, drinklmnt.com is the website where you can pick this up. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the watermelon, the strawberry, the orange. I love those, those flavor profiles. And I'm someone that's, I mean, I've been filtering my water and, you know, everything from reverse osmosis to using the Berkey filters and, and remineralizing it for years. But what, what I've found is that a lot of those um, electrolyte and mineral solutions, they taste awful. You know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's some really good ones that on paper are fantastic by like trace minerals research and stuff like that, but you put it in your water and you're like, ah, you know, or you you have to throw back a whole bunch of these like Schuessler's cell salts every day. And none of it's particularly enjoyable, which over time just decreases compliance. And, uh, the, the element stuff tastes amazing and it makes it enjoyable. And, and for me, at least that's, the key where I'm going to continue drinking this stuff because I enjoy it. I like it, you know, and, and, um, it makes, it, it makes that habit, um, and proper hydration and mineral balance, just, you know, I, more doable for me. Yeah. We, we have a big 64 ounce, um, shaker jug with a, you know, plastic cap on it and everything. And I just mix two of the elements in that and shake it up and put it in the fridge. And, uh, my seven to nine year old daughter's, they just fill up cups throughout the day. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, prior to doing that, both of them would run around with these, like just chronically like, um, chapped lips, you know, my wife would lather them up with, with chapstick and everything. I'm like, that helps. But the the thing is, it's, they're just like the running, like wild banshees all day consuming no fluids and, and the fluids that they do consume really don't have enough electrolytes. And she was like, well, why don't you mix up some element for them? So I, ordered this giant jug and, and put it in the uh, refrigerator and like the kids crush that. And I just kind of rotate the, the flavors, but it, it, to that, that point, like 
it tastes good enough that the kids look forward to doing it. And they're like, I'm a little thirsty. I'm going to go grab a, a, a cup of element, you know, and it's on their mind because it tastes good enough that they actually want to do it. But it's not so hyper palatable that they're over there, like mainlining it and, you know, you know, selling their bodies on the street to pay for it and stuff like right. that. So it's a it's a nice middle ground on that regard. Totally. Yeah. And 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 then it, it also seems that people who have a ton of juice boxes and things like that in the home for their kids, they end up drinking them, too. You know, right. I've, I've, I've right. had clients over the years who are like, yeah, I, I I don't know if I was low carb or low sugar or, or what, but I just crushed like nine of my kids juice boxes and, uh, you know, threw off my macros for the day. Right. Um, which tends to happen. You you've also done some fun things with your element products and, uh, like margaritas. Maybe you yes. can tell us a little bit more about that for the people that, that like their tequila. So when we first started this whole process, I really wasn't sure if like the world needed another electrolyte product. I was kind of like, really, you know, there's Gatorade and there's this and that and noon and all these things. So as a backup, I, I we thought about some flavors that would go well with mixed drinks, you know, like a, a margarita base. And so our, our first flavor was a citrus salt, which goes amazing as a margarita base. And then we did a, a lemon habanero and a mango chili, which also like, those are good as you well. Know, tequila, um, uh, uh, vodka. Like there's some interesting options on that. We have a seasonal flavor that's grapefruit and we do like a, a, uh, a salty dog, like a greyhound. So, uh, you know, it's the, the grapefruit plus tequila and it's got the salt in it and everything. And it, they taste amazing. And the, you know, this, it, it, it really is starting. It, it's almost like I'm selling CrossFit now. It's like, oh, it cures cancer and, you know, it'll make you six foot two and, and lean. But um, it, it's uh, so much of what is negative about the after effects of, of alcohol is the dehydration and the electrolyte depletion. And if you consume some electrolytes with your stuff, you tend to just feel less horrible. Now, I'm not saying you can do like 15 shots of tequila and walk away unscathed. But, it, you know, it, if you if you drink a fair amount and you have no adequate electrolytes versus drink a fair amount and have adequate electrolytes, it's a very, very noticeable, you know, days. But um, gosh, those are the the biggies, like the kind of margarita based things, the salty dog, uh, the chocolate one people have done like a uh, a black Russian. So they'll, oh, yeah. they'll do, you know, so it's kind of a chocolate base and we'll do a little bit of whole cream and and then the vodka with that and mix all that up. I'm, I'm trying to think what else, like there's a couple of gin drinks also that people have, have spun up. Are those all on the website? The drink? They're all on the, web, the website. And uh, if you go uh, drinkelement.com forward slash homebrew, then it's a bunch of uh, the, the booze recipes. And it's also a, how to mix your own. Like if you, you don't want to buy element, but uh, you take some table salt, some no salt, which is uh, potassium chloride, and then get a little bit of magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, mix all that up. And then you can do your own shaker bottle of like your, your homebrew of element. Yeah. I love it. I've uh, I mean, I'm a big fan and have found over the years that the, the difference between having a couple cocktails and staying hydrated, you know, throwing in some water in between, throwing in some, some element in between. And then at the end of the night, hitting some N-acetylcysteine, some, mm -hmm. some vitamin C, maybe yep. some milk thistle. It's like the, the effects the next day are either 
completely mitigated or at least 30 to 50% less than they would right. be if none of those things were, were a part of it. And you just kind of threw caution to the wind and, uh, and painted the town red. Yeah. Um, uh, before we kind of move on and talk a bit about sacred cow and some of your books, uh, your journey with, with ulcerative colitis, that's, I think that's something that a lot of people are dealing with. And I've, I've talked to folks over these past few years that are experiencing blood in their stools and, and, you know, anything they eat seems like it causes gas and bloating and, and, you know, or constipation or diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any other tips that you found helpful or things that you've recommended and, and found that um, had a positive effect on, on other people in your community that may be dealing with some of these uh, digestive disorders? Man. Yeah. I, inflammatory I, uh, conditions. Um, like were you juicing? I know like that, that's one that some people find helpful is getting rid of the fiber. Um, yeah. If, so, if, so if, interestingly, yeah. yeah. But the, 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 the problem there is that I don't do great with a ton of carbs either. So juicing kind of gets it. So I think it's better. And this is where interestingly, where like carnivore or getting close to carnivore may be helpful for some people because I've found that like huge amounts of fiber, like a a giant green salad is not my friend. Um, I can do a salad if it's almost kind of cooked a little bit, like uh, Mm -hmm. my wife will do, um, it's uh, apple cider vinegar with some, some different spices in it and everything, but she'll put that on like some, some romaine lettuce and then let it marinate overnight basically but it's basically cooking that stuff you know like the the it's kind of wilted but not in a a unappealing way like it's still a little al dente right and i can eat a little bit of that and i'm okay but you know we're used to i would do like these giant bowls of salad and then i would have these giant blowouts and i'm like well Mm -hmm. i guess that's just the way it is and it wasn't until the crazy carnivore people started talking about gut issues and autoimmunity and like they had done everything they did paleo they did did keto they went autoimmune paleo and usually they saw some degree of improvement but it wasn't until they just fully cut out all plant material that they're like that was like the shift in their their healing and to that end i i could potentially see some people benefiting maybe from a a juice you know oriented process i i think that like the total vegan centric model of that is just very low protein. And I think it, mm-hmm. it's going to be tough sledding. If your gut's already damaged, it's hard as hell to absorb your nutrients. And then yeah. if you eat a nutrient depleted diet, you know, it, it, which I, I think veganism typically is, it's gonna be really tough, you know, but um, uh, I think that folks frequently, you know, maybe they end up on something like this juice deal or like a carnivore approach and they figure out over time, okay, I can handle tomatoes and plantains and bananas and this and that, and I can't do this, 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 and this, you know? And, and so just over time, they usually get a little bit more latitude with things. Um, I've seen really mixed response with regards to like probiotics. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's about a 50, 50 coin toss. Some people, right. it seems to help. And some people, it seems to make them worse and, or they just get absolutely no benefit from it. So I see mm-hmm. that as a, a real um, coin toss. And I see a lot of, uh, I want to call it snake oil, but a lot of hopes and dreams sold around the idea of probiotics. And I, I see it at best as a, a coin toss. Like I think for some people, it, it's really great. And other people, it's pretty problematic. Um, there was a product called Restore. that yeah, was this kind of interesting. Bush. 
I think so. Yeah. 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 And uh, I've heard people just rave about restore. They're like, I was crippled and then I did it. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally felt like it started feeling really good the first couple of weeks. And then it kind of petered out and didn't really go anywhere for me, but I'm kind of like, uh, I'm the worst. Nothing works for me. Everything sucks. You know, it's like the fact that I had two weeks of improvement, I'm like, Oh, there was really something to this, you know? And I, I've talked to people that were really, really sick and, and they're pretty emphatic that that was like the, a major piece of figuring out their, their healing and, and recovery. And they end up needing to fig- discover which foods are really serious trigger foods and, and stuff like that. Absolutely. I, I've also seen a big connection with uh, chronic sympathetic dominance. So people that are just mm-hmm. kind of stuck mm-hmm. in this, in this yep. fight or flight. And, and from an ancestral perspective, you think about like, if, if your body thinks that you're being chased by a lion, they're not going to be partitioning a lot of biological resources to digest, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's going to affect your stomach acid production and, and your enzyme production and gastric juice flow and stuff where I, I've been shocked in the past when people started really honing in and being consistent with meditation yep. and some of these uh, mindfulness practices to kind of come back to and, 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 you know, redevelop their parasympathetic tone. Yep. Um, they start finding their digestion improves and some yeah. of the foods that they couldn't handle, or like, you know, if they would eat a huge salad and it would turn their butt into a salad shooter, all of a sudden right. they're, uh, they're, they're having normal stools from that. And, um, you reminded me with the, with the, you know, the cooked salad overnight, that's huge. I've never done that or had it or recommended it, but it, it does make sense that you'd allow the apple cider vinegar and some of the other spices and possibly even citrus to start breaking it down. Other people have done, um, massaged salads where they'll take like the kale or the lettuce and actually like with their hands, oh, break it break up, it up yep. to start yep. the, the digestive process, almost like, um, not like a blended smoothie, um, but things that lower the digestive burden can also, can also be helpful. So I think, um, thank you for those recommendations. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, beef is framed as, as one of the most environmentally destructive foods and, and, and least healthy meats. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and some of the misconceptions around beef. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, it, it would be easy to, I don't want to say this. It would be easy to do this really trite, like elevator pitch thing where it's like, well, this is preposterous and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you, you know, just rattle it through. And I, 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 I will say, I want to kind of frame this up a little bit. Um, Within this kind of vegan-centric world, uh, if you go vegan, you will live forever. You'll be skinny. You're going to save the planet. You're going to be morally superior. Like all, all those great stuff happens in it, it. You know, like uh, meat causes cancer. Meat causes type two diabetes. Meat's going to destroy the planet. This stuff is all like elevator pitch. It's all super elegant and slick and and. Uh, you know, just rolls off the tongue. It seems very compelling. And the main thing that I would throw out there is I would encourage people, if you really do care about climate change, just file away maybe 1% of credulity around all of those claims and do some diligence on vetting them out. Because if climate change really is an important thing, then it's really important that we get it right. Mm -hmm. And if meat is the primary driver of climate change, as many people 
assert it is, then okay, we need to address that. If it is not the primary driver of climate change, but millions and mil- tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are being told that. And so we're looking in a direction that is not where the problem actually lies, mm-hmm. then we're going to fuck a lot of things up. Yeah. And, and so it, it, it's so, I'm, you know, like, I, I'm not saying I'm right about this, but I'm, what I, what I kind of want to couch it in is it's important enough that folks should enter into this with a pretty clean slate and then start assessing things at face value. And so, you know, we did, uh, my my co-author and I, uh, Diana Rogers, we did the book Sacred Cow, and we have a, a film by the, the same title um, because we recognize that some people are not going to be willing to, to read a book on sustainable agriculture and, you know, dig into all this stuff. So the, the film covers a lot of the same material just in a, in a different way. And it's quite good. I didn't and know we, you guys had a film. Is that out? Yeah, it, it's out. Yeah. It's on all, all distribution channels. It, it's funny as an aside, um, we were in the last stage, literally the last, the last 11th hour stage of, uh, Sacred Cow becoming an a, a a Netflix original, and like somebody at the top level said, "No, we can't do this," and they they like ceased all communications. They didn't even carry it generally. So the the lower downs were very into it, and then it it finally hit some level of vetting that somebody was like, "No, we cannot." cannot carry this thing, but I'm, I'm not the least bit surprised, but it, it, perhaps no, the past two later. years is kind of like, Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, color oh, it's, me, color oh, it's, shocked. Yeah. it's, it's, it's the same people pushing the propaganda as opposed to science that, you know, they're the, the COVID narrative aligns right. pretty, pretty well with the, the climate change narrative. And, I, and I'm not saying that there is not environmental problems and that I, I do agree that we need to care about this planet because as far as we know, it's all we've got. But there's so much nonsense around climate change. There is. There's a stunning amount. And, yeah. uh, you know, what What we did is we got in and we looked at the ethical, environmental and and uh, health considerations of a meat inclusive food system. And we started looking at sacred cows around this topic. You know, here, here are these assumptions that, um, well, cows use up way too much land you know, is one of these things that's, that's thrown out there. Okay. Well, let's, let's dig into that. And what we find is that the, the land that cattle do well on is grasslands and these grasslands are good at producing grass and they're good at doing nothing else. They're not good for farming. They're not, you really shouldn't pave them over and turn them into strip malls or anything else because they they're involved with uh, replenishing aquifers and, they're, they're their own, you know, uh, 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 climate change mitigating element because they retain water and, and you know, decrease the albedo of sunlight interfacing with the, the surface of the earth and everything. So, and two thirds of the earth's landmass are grasslands. They are literally amenable for nothing other than growing grass and supporting the animals that, that you know, herbivores that, that graze on grasslands. And so... This notion that there's like, oh, there's all this land that's that's misused. So it, it literally, I, it just couldn't be more false. Um, if we back up 300, 400 years and we come back to the Americas, our grasslands are teeming with bison and elk and deer and, and moose. And, it, you know, it, it, there were more grazing animals then than there are now. 
and we were not destroying the planet and it was not causing climate catastrophe. And part of that is that did it we get into well cattle release all these greenhouse gases and in particular methane. This is true, but methane is a carbon atom with four hydrogen atoms coming coming off of it at, at right angles. That carbon atom prior to being methane was carbon dioxide that was part of a plant. So it was carbon dioxide in the air, then it was brought into the plant and via photosynthesis became part of the plant. You know, it became a part of a protein or a carbohydrate or a lipid, and then it was consumed by an animal. And then the animal released it as, as part of either carbon dioxide as, as part of its own metabolism or as methane, which is part of uh, microbial metabolism, you know, in its gut. And that is part of a carbon cycle. Now, methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than, than carbon dioxide is, but it also only has a 10-year half-life and it is part of a cycle. And what's been crazy about that when people have been going after methane We've discovered that shellfish on the ocean floor produce prodigious amounts of, of methane, termites, peat bogs, uh, rice paddies, and on and on and on. There's all these biogenic sources of methane. And what has happened is that people have become so crazy over the notion of reducing greenhouse gas emissions that folks are suggesting that we should eradicate shellfish from the ocean floor because they produce methane in the same you know, vein that they would say, well, we should have fewer animals consuming grass because they produce methane. So, mm -hmm. and it, again, this is part of a, a cyclic process that's been going on as, as long as there's been complex life on the planet. And that's not really the, you know, the place to look at main climate change vectors. Um, people will say that uh, cows consume too much water. But the water that is is used for cattle, by and large, there's there's three categories of water from these environmental perspectives: green water, which is water that falls on the land as either rain, snow, or you know some sort of precipitation; blue water, which are lakes, rivers, uh, streams, and then some below ground aquifers; mm -hmm. and then there's gray water, which is the the effluent that's left over after like sewage and animal you know usage and whatnot. What's gone through like the water reclamation plants? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And once it comes out, then it's blue water again, once it's mm -hmm. been been processed. Yeah. So the water doesn't disappear, it gets put through a water cycle, you know, and this right. is one of the, the crazy things when you're dealing with the, this kind of knee jerk or, or emotionally driven environmentalism is it's as if you know, the land gets used once or the water gets used once and then it's just gone forever. And there's literally no concept of like cycles and recycling and, and whatnot. It, it, it's kind of kind of fascinating. But with this water use, even with conventional beef, about 96 to 90, 95, 96 percent of the water that is used in that process used is the water that falls on grasslands. Mm -hmm. Like it was going to fall on the grasslands no matter what unless we had giant tarps that were going to cover millions and millions of acres of land and like consolidate this water. It is falling on the earth. It grows plants. It, it contributes to ecosystems. It's the way that grasslands and the world function, but it's presented as if that water is being stolen from somewhere else. And it's only about five, 6% of the water that comes from 
lakes, rivers, or below ground aquifers. Now, the flip side of this is that something like almonds, 96 to 98% of the water for almonds comes from below ground aquifers. And it comes from places like California that the aquifers are being depleted far more quickly than they're being recharged. But there's absolutely no outcry about that because it's a plant-based food. And the, the irony there is that like 80% of the almonds that the United States produces are sold to China. So we're taking our limited groundwater in the most productive area of the country that we have, and we're selling it to China in the form of almonds and mm -hmm. all is well and right in the world because it's a plant-based material. So, you know, you have the land use, you have the uh, water use, um, you have the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I know I did a pretty superficial treatment of, of this, but in the book in particular, we do a very systematic process of like, here's what the claim is. Here's what the data that, you know, maybe supports that claim. And here's the maybe some alternate views on it. And we're able to really unpack this stuff in a pretty systematic way. And I do think that there's a ton of things that need to be improved upon in our, our food system and, it, you know, animal husbandry system. There are lots of uh, concerns, but, uh, you know, one of the concerns is that we, we uh, allocate food that could feed humans into feeding animals. In the case of cows, this is almost 100% false because even conventionally raised cattle spend 70% of their life on grass. And then the bulk of what they are fed, even in finishing, comes from like ethanol production. It's the leftover products like grain residues. Most of it is inedible to humans. There's only a little bit of grain and, and soy type products that are fed to cows that would otherwise be edible to humans. Chicken and pork, by contrast, though, live their whole lives on grain and soy-based products that, in theory, could be fed to humans. So I do think that there's some legitimate gripes there, and I think that the environmental issues and the uh, ethical issues of chicken and pork production are much more problematic than beef production because they're in these really confined area you know, lots. So I think that much of the, the criticism around animal husbandry is more valid in chicken and pork, but ironically, chicken and pork are sold generally as being these more green and benign entities or, or processes than beef production, which is, mm -hmm. it's really false. It, it's completely mm -hmm. false. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of misdirection and, and misinformation around farming, especially, especially organic farming. And, um, and, and as it relates to climate change and and sort of the direction that society is being pushed. But I think fortunately, a lot of people um, are, are, I don't want to say waking up, but they're starting to look into it and say, all right, the, the powers that be that own the media corporations, uh, they haven't been too uh, accurate with a lot of what they're putting out. And it's on us to dig into this stuff and, and investigate a little bit deeper. Um in, in sacred cow and and I mean even in the paleo solution like you were you were one of the first people to talk about quality over quantity and and the fact that um, you know two different steaks that look identical could be completely different nutritionally based on where that steak came from and how the animal was raised and um, you know the foods what that what that animal ate um, maybe you could contrast uh, compare and contrast for someone listening uh, that may not be familiar with that the difference between uh, a, a cow from 
a, a feeding operation versus a cow that was raised on grass and the, the, the merits of um, one versus the other. Yeah. And so this is one of the things that I got wrong um, because it, a, a superficial reading of the material on this uh, suggests that pastured meat, grass-fed meat has more omega-3s, say, than um, conventional meat. And it does but it's a tiny difference. And beef has a tiny amount of omega-3s relative to, to other foods and just relative to beef itself. Uh, to get the same amount of, of omega-3s that you would get out of two ounces of salmon, wild-caught salmon, you would need to eat eight pounds of pastured beef. So mm. it's not the place to look for on this right. stuff. So, so when we sat down to write this book and do the film, we had general chapters that we were going to do, you know, environmental, ethical, and health. And we had all these kind of assumptions, you know, here's the, this assumption. One of the assumptions was pastured meat is nutritionally superior to conventional meat. And uh, the, the, the pastured meat producers and the kind of meat elitists have wanted to kill us since the writing of this book and the release of this movie. But what we found is there's not a massive difference between conventional meat and pastured meat on a nutritional standpoint. Mm -hmm. Now, pastured dairy is much more nutritious. Pastured eggs are much more nutritious. Wild-caught fish is way more nutritious than farmed fish. But the, the crazy thing is that beef and animals like beef are these amazing nutrient upcyclers. And you can just throw absolute garbage into them and they end up producing really remarkably nutrient dense foods. It, mm -hmm. it, and so the big it, so Diane and I looked at the data and we were like, damn, this doesn't look good because you would you would like a a nice greenwash process. It's like mm -hmm. it's better for the environment and it's more nutritious. And, you know, the I very much like the, the vegan thing, which is, you know, this super consistent story. But when we looked critically at the available information, it just there wasn't a massive difference between pastured and conventional meat. And so we're like, maybe we're doing this wrong. So we found an independent food researcher, a Ph.D. in nutritional biochemistry. And we said, hey, we want you to do a compare and contrast of conventional meat and uh, pastured meat. And that's all we told this guy. We didn't show him any of the research that we had done. We wanted him to jump in and, and do it completely independently. And he arrived at like exactly the same thing that we did. And so we we're like, okay, I, I guess this is a, a reality. And like, we, we thought about lying about it. We were like, oh, well, it, it'd make a great story. You know, we could just fudge on this and just say, oh, uh, pastured meat is nutritionally superior to, uh, you know, conventional meat. And it, it's got superior omega-3 ratios. And the reason why we didn't do that though, is that, if you if you do one thing like that and somebody finds it like some some you know vegan oriented doctor as as an example who really goes line by line through the material we have and you have something that obviously incorrect then like mm -hmm. everything else falls falls suspect you know and mm -hmm. uh so we just couldn't do it, it, it you know and again um Pastured dairy is is much more nutritious. Uh, eggs are much more nutritious on that pastured side. Uh, uh, wild caught fish and seafood are much vastly nutritionally superior to farmed uh, products. But with 
beef and in particular the the difference and part of this is that conventional beef is spends 70 percent of its life on grass like mm -hmm. it, it you know it spends a chunk not on grass but even when it's eating crop residues and whatnot it does a really good job of turning that into high quality nutrition you know mm -hmm. uh, essential amino acids uh, zinc iron all that type of stuff so um, it's kind of a heartbreaker. It has made mm -hmm. people really angry at us. It's not a popular thing, but it, an interesting thing that I, I have observed is I really expected there was going to be a big pushback from the vegan community about this book that, you know, there would be these kind of hit pieces about the book and the film. And um, there's been nothing. And what surprised me about that, it, it's funny that there's nothing. I mean, there's literally no, the only things that you can find where people are cranky about the book and film is from grass-fed meat producers who are angry at us on this, this particular point. And um, what's fascinating, and, and I've told them, I'm like, for the love of God, like if, if I could find a different way to massage the numbers, I would do it because this would be a great story. Like I don't want the people were trying to support angry with us over this, you know, this bone of contention. It was like we were idiots or, or had some agenda that we were getting money from like big meat or something. It was really kind of crazy. But what's interesting to me is that I think that our story has been buttoned up sufficiently tight that like the vegan folks haven't even wanted to talk about the book because there's not, we did a good enough job that there's not a bunch of gotchas in there. Like we were really careful in the the claim that we made or the way that we looked at stuff. And if somebody wanted to go through postscript and look at, well, this is the study they cited. And actually this is what the conclusion was like our shit's all consistent. Like we're not taking a study that says one thing and we're saying that it says something else. Like it is totally on point. And so if you poke around, if you do like a, a sacred cow review, like, there aren't these massive, you know, hit pieces where folks are saying, oh, these, you know, there's all this false information and, and whatnot. It, it's actually super favorable or it's just kind of silence. And I think the silence is because they don't actually want people to look too closely at it because mm -hmm. I think we did a good enough job that they're like, oh, we don't we don't yeah. want a, a deeper scrutiny of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that that. I've been observing and seeing in the scientific literature. My dad was, was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, seven years ago. And we're, we're currently involved in a, uh, a lawsuit. You know, he was, he grew up, his, his father was a landscaper. So they had high exposure to various pesticides, including mm. par Paraquat. Um, and there's now a growing body of evidence that pesticides like Paraquat, like Monsanto's uh, Roundup, uh, mm -hmm. glyphosate, um, that these not just are dangerous from a direct exposure perspective, but that they can accumulate in, in the fat and, and yep. organs and tissues of animals who eat the, the plants that had been treated, uh, with them. So it seems like from the, um, from the nutrition perspective, we're talking about, you know, addition by addition, right? Are you yep. going to get more nutrients from eating a grass-fed cow as opposed to a conventionally raised cow? Um, what have you seen on the addition by subtraction side, whereas um, less exposure to pesticides, not yeah, eating like that, genetically that modified? 
Yeah, the, the bioaccumulation. The bioaccumulation sort of story. So, so for us, we had it broken down into two very distinct categories. Mm-hmm. Nutrition, which is essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, that, you know, that, that really trying to stay within like dietetic view of, you know, scientific view. And then we have this bioaccumulation story. Mm-hmm. I think the bioaccumulation story is super interesting. I also think it's really early. Mm-hmm. The data there wasn't, I, I, at my gut level, I think that there's something there, like there's uh, interesting. It's, it's difficult to test. We don't necessarily have the best diagnostic tools. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're, we're still in this spot of what are we, what are we even looking at? Are we looking at the primary molecule or are we looking at a sixth generation metabolite potentially? Mm-hmm. Are we looking at a sixth generation metabolite that not only went through the, the, uh, liver of the organism, but it's actually a microbial metabolite that gets released back into the environment, you know? So like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers to this. Um, when you, when you consider the, uh, the proposed mechanism that glyphosate is this mitochondrial disruptor, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to that. And mm-hmm. so I do when, we well. parse, when we parse these things out and what we did in the book is we, we, for where I was at that point, I said, that I didn't feel that the science was strong enough to it, it unequivocally say that bioaccumulation is a danger, mm-hmm. but it's the, 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 where we, we get some traction here though, that I think would make people happy is that the application of these products on the land is destroying the topsoil. That mm-hmm. is unequivocal. That is right. like, take that to the bank. So from a nutrition standpoint, I can't build a strong argument that one should eat pastured meat versus conventional meat. If you are a young family of four living at the margin, just getting going, and you just want to feed your family nutrient-dense food, then mm-hmm. eat the ground beef from, from Costco and Walmart, because that's going to be better than a bagel or, or rice or any of that stuff. If you've got more means and you want to vote on on the you know environmental side of this thing then absolutely there's a case to be made for that uh, uh diminished use of uh pesticides herbicides um all that type of stuff and i i i think over time it's going to become pretty clear that these these products are really injurious to human health to health in general like Mm-hmm. Soil microbiome, microbiome of waterways, organisms yeah. in the waterways, our own uh, microbiome, our own microbiome. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, these uh, androgenic, you know, properties. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, uh, alligator penises turning into vaginas and all kinds of crazy, <laughs> right. crazy shit. Like, there's there's a lot of really wacky stuff there. But I think that we're very early in that scene. The bugger is that once we're late in that scene, we may be super screwed, you know, totally agree. Is, is part of the problem. Yeah. But we did try to be very clinical. And here's this part of this story, which is nutrition. And here's this part of this story, which is the bioaccumulation. And again, just to kind of recap that, I, I said that at a gut level, I would not be surprised if the bioaccumulation story is significant and is a, of note for health. But we don't even need that currently to make a case against this this process because mm-hmm. the environmental impact on soil is enough to to make a case that we should be doing something different than that. 
hundred percent agree. And and two of the things that I've come across in, in the literature that have been um, also echoed in neurological disorders and, you know, what I've observed with, with my father, you know, for 10 years leading up to the Parkinson's diagnosis, my dad was having, uh, he had a REM sleep disorder, uh, mm. night terrors and things like that. And when we start digging into paraquat and, and glyphosate and some of these pesticides and herbicides, one of the things that, that they are implicated for is, is REM sleep disorders and mm -hmm. their, their impact there. And also their degradation of the blood brain barrier you know, mm -hmm. and kind of opening up the doorway for other toxins that we're all exposed to just, just by way of modern living, you know, getting into places that maybe they shouldn't be. So right. I mentioned that just for the listeners who want to dig a little bit deeper in this stuff and say, okay, we may not have the means or the diagnostic tools to quantify glyphosate content the way that we will in the future and the way that we would probably like in order to have a more solid uh, perspective and a stronger leg to stand on in these things. But if, um, you know, if quality sleep and neurological health and the integrity of your, your blood brain barrier are important to you, dig into the scientific literature and, and, and see if you come across some of the same things that I've seen, because there may be, um, there, there may be validity there on the, on the bioaccumulation side. Right. Um, right. How, how are you eating these days? Where does, uh, where does beef fit into your weekly nutrition and, um, where do you get your, where do you get your beef? You know, I've, I've gone, um, not vegan, but you know, I, I find that my brain feels incredibly sharp when I'm eating a lot more plants that, mm. that are digestible and I'm listening to my body and focusing on the foods that I feel good after eating, but it, it affects my strength. It affects muscle mass and it has mm -hmm. downsides in other areas. So for me, sort of a, a cyclical approach where mm. I, I have some meals that would be considered largely vegan. And then I have some meals that are straight carnivore. Um, and, and I'm kind of curious where you fall on that and what you've, what you've found to be the, uh, 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 consistent, um, and sustainable approach. On yeah. The nutrition side. Yeah, you know, sourcing, we're, we're really lucky living in in northern Montana that we we have some great options, you know, Montana's pastured, great pastured meat. Uh, so we have one uh, Montana Longhorn that, that we got from the Montana Longhorn Company. And then we got nice. one whole bison from uh, uh, Rome Free Bison Ranch. And uh, I've not been able to do much hunting yet. I've still been getting all my stuff squared away, but, you know, hopefully we'll get some some wild game in on that mix. And, uh, uh, you know, where I am on this stuff, I eat, eat, you know, some sort of animal protein at most meals, not all of them, but I would say the vast, vast majority of them, I don't do that well with much fiber. So like I can do some fruit, different types of fruit. And even, even there, like I, I, I vary on that. Um, if I stew the fruit, like, uh, I can do apples. Okay. Uh, pears, not so much, but if I take the pears and I just kind of cook them for 10 minutes, I, I do fine with them. Um, but that kind of carnivore ish thing, um, I seem to do pretty well with, uh, I don't do so well with like almonds anymore. I, I think because of the, uh, oxalates possibly, but I'm not, I'm not super sure on that. It could just be a, you know, a, a thing with almonds. Cause I ate them for years. So like that's an interesting part of trying to eat lower carb is that, uh, 
you know, do I just do spoonfuls of lard with it or, you, you know, tallow and that gets super un, unappealing it, it, you know, rather quickly. Um, it was easy to do if I could do like a couple of handfuls of smoked almonds or, or something with that. So since that's changed, it, it's not a, a, as big of a, a, you know, an option that I can put in there. So I, I guess I, you know, pretty protein centric. Um, I have been noticing that I, I feel pretty good with a little bit more fruit. So I eat maybe a hundred, hundred grams of carbs from, from fruit. Most days on my hard training days, I might do a little bit more than that. And, um, I definitely don't do spectacularly well with a lot of, uh, you know, raw veggies. If, if I eat veggies, they need to be cooked really well. And even then I do more of a, uh, a condiment of them versus the main course. Mm -hmm. Like used to, I, I would have, you know, good size head of cabbage and I would cut that thing up and, you know, make a stir fry or whatever. And I would probably eat, you know, if it was a two pound cabbage, I'd eat a pound, pound and a half of it. And maybe that was just kind of a ridiculous amount, but I, <laughs> I thought I was doing something good. What I find is I can, if I like make something like a, a broth soup and I take some cabbage and I cut it up very thin and I cook it almost like noodles, but it's again, more of like a uh, condiment type deal. I do, I, I do okay with that. But if I go much beyond that, I start getting some, some GI issues and the GI issues definitely feed into some kind of uh, subpar neurological stuff too. Ah, gotcha. And what was the, the bison company that you, you mentioned Montana Longhorn. Is that, yep, is that something where, where listeners could order beef as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, Rome free is the, uh, beef company. And I, I think both of them ship a bit, but you know, you would want to be Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, something like that. I, I think that they don't ship super, super far and wide, but, uh, right. uh, uh, Rome free bison, like they have some of their, uh, bison jerky stuff and like, uh, whole foods and Costco and stuff like that. They're really cool folks. Nice. Are, are there any other companies, um, just as, I mean, we, we did that as well. We got, um, you know, uh, uh, we went in on a cow with some other people and I've been cooking up on, on the days that I'm doing more carnivore, cooking up some of that, uh, and also looking at some of these other national or regional, um, mm -hmm. quality sources of, of healthy animals. Are there any other that maybe you don't necessarily use yourself, but recommend to clients who live in different regions of, of the country? Yeah. I mean, white oak pastures, uh, serves, you know, so much of the East coast, like the, the, uh, Southeastern United States, which has a huge population density. Um, I think you just have to poke around a little bit. And I mean, if you live in any type of a, a rural area, there's usually somebody that's growing some animals, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. raising some animals and, uh, the, if you're able to, to go in and I mean, during COVID, it became almost impossible to get a, a big chest freezer, but if you get a decent size chest freezer and you buy a whole animal, you can get the whole thing, you know, for like seven bucks a pound average mm. price, you know, mm -hmm. which is not bad for the ground beef side and a spectacular price for the, uh, the ribeyes and the, the fillets yeah. and everything, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it really pencils out well. And we, we have a, a big dog. And so we get all the bones and we do like the shin bones and all, all, cook some of those and give some of them the dog. So I get a lot of the fiddly bits, um, heart, liver, um, shanks. Uh, I haven't done much of the tripe yet, but I'm going to do that on the next 
go around because I do want to make like some fun, some menudo and stuff like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to do the, the trike yeah. next time. Yeah. 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 We were, we were just doing some, uh, some faux pho and yeah. ramen, ramen last night. Um, have you dug into raw dairy at all? Have you taken that plunge, the unpasteurized, unhomogenized? Yeah. I, I mean, I've looked at it. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't think it's, um, Chuck Norris tears. Like I, if folks want to do it, I think it's great. I, I think it's crazy that you can be arrested in a lot of places for having raw dairy. Like I, it's one of those, um, health overreach things, you know, if people want yeah. to stay in business, they're not going to give their customers E. coli. Like if they get one go around of that, they're going to fix the problem because they actually want to stay in business and, and all that stuff. But, uh, I, I, I know like the Weston A. Price folks are, are just like, it, it'll, it'll heal whatever ails you. And I, I, I think it's great. I think it's good stuff, but I, I don't, um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know that it's got magic, but much above and, and beyond that. I like good yogurts and all that type of stuff. Like I, right. I dig all those things, but yeah. And I do think that pasture dairy, like I, I said before, it'll contain some, uh, conjugated linoleic acid, some, um, if you get it at the right time of year, it can be really, really rich in carotenoids from, from like clover and whatnot. Like it can almost be orange, uh, uh, you know, if you get the the right type of dairy there, but then it, it does it have to be raw dairy? It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, no, I appreciate that. Let's kind of bring it, bring it home with a little bit of your, your training and maybe some, um, biohacks, if any, I mean, I know you're largely nutrition based and, and you're obviously physically active. Um, what does a typical training week or workout split look like for you? I know you do jujitsu. Maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about how you try to parse things out over a weekly or a monthly basis to, to check various boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, strength and conditioning wise, I have some, some good friends, Sarah and Grayson strange from a uh, basis health and performance. And man, they would be awesome people to have on the show. Uh, they run a, a, uh, a strength reset within our healthy rebellion network, usually a couple of times a year. So they'll put together like a, a six or eight week strength template, um, usually four days a week. And it's a really nice balance between barbell and dumbbell work, body weight work, uh, bilateral versus unilateral. And they have a, a, they, what's cool is they mix into it a lot of mobility work from kin stretch and, and functional range conditioning. So like if I'm doing an overhead press in between my pressing, I'm doing shoulder girdle mobility work so that nice. my overhead pressing gets better and better. And also mm-hmm. they, even before that they do movement assessment because, you know, maybe like if I've got to do some sort of weird thing to get a bar overhead, like, you, you know, you see happen in CrossFit all the time, the, the founder of, of FRC, Dr. Andreo Spina, he'll make the case. It's like, you don't actually have a shoulder right now. You have something that kind of looks like a shoulder and we need to get it back to being a shoulder, but a shoulder has these very specific parameters, you know, and if you can't go overhead and internally rotate and externally rotate and all this stuff, you don't have a shoulder. And so you shouldn't treat it like a shoulder. You shouldn't do, you know, doesn't mean you can't press above yourself, but maybe you do an incline bench press with a dumbbell or, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. Like you, you find some other thing to do. So there's not just the mobility, but there's movement assessment and standards to be able to even do something. So 
I do that three to four days a week. Um, uh, sometimes it's on the same day as jujitsu. Sometimes it's on an alternate day. Uh, jujitsu will range from two to four days a week. Just totally depends on, on, you know, what I have going on. It, it seems like in the winter, uh, between homeschool and, and different things, we've been going a little bit less. Like we, we just get out of the house a little bit less. Uh, I will try to get in two days a week. If I make it to jujitsu, then I may do less than this, but two to three days a week of just some zone two cardio. So like getting mm -hmm. my heart rate at 140, 145 beats per minute. And I'll, I'll, if I can do it, I would like to set that up in a circuit. So it's like, I'm doing a real light kettlebell swing. I'm hitting a heavy bag real easily. So I'll try to do a mixed modal deal and, and keep my heart rate about in that pace. I'm not always able to put that together. And so sometimes it's like, uh, four minutes on the Schwinn airdyne, mm -hmm. two minutes jump rope, and I'll just cycle back and forth between that. Or I'll, I'll, uh, if I'm, if I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel, I'll go to the gym and get on a treadmill and watch mm -hmm. some schlock sci-fi show while I, I do my zone two cardio. And honestly, that stuff is kind of enjoyable because I never do shit like that. Like we barely watch any TV at home. Like I barely right. never really have any time. So I get to catch up on some stuff that I want to see there. And because it actually has a heart rate monitor on it, I can check it. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm on point with this stuff. And with all that, for the most part, what I try to do is, um, nasal breathing for the bulk of my zone too. And I just try to push the nasal breathing out try to get more capacity, uh, out, try to be able to do more work at the highest level of my nasal breathing. But then when I start really doing something pretty hard, like, a uh, a hard circuit, or if jujitsu gets pretty hard, I'll do some forced expiration where I blow out so that I passively re, you know, rebreathe on the back end because, mm -hmm. uh, we're stronger blowing out than we are inhaling. And, and, uh, when we blow out really hard, the elasticity of our, our lungs and our diaphragm and whatnot actually creates a little bit of passive refilling. So that's the way that I'll, I'll breathe. And when I, I do harder activities or, you know, if I have to run or something like that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And a very well-rounded program, um, between jujitsu, the zone two, the mobility and the, and the strength training. Um, what are some of the things that, that you and your family have put into place? I mean, it sounds, you're, you're a pretty base dude. I've seen you publicly speaking on Instagram and some of your platforms, like, Hey, I don't know how long this stuff's going to be around. We've already seen some of our friends lose their platforms. Um, what are the steps that you've already made in addition to homeschooling to, um, I guess, depend less upon the system? Mm -hmm. and uh to set your family up for for a stronger future. Yeah, I you know in that uh there's a video that's going around like the killing of the mind and it talks about uh mass formation psychosis. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating in that is the the two methods for fighting mass formation psychosis and and really totalitarianism at large is humor, ironically, yeah. you know, satire and humor and uh who've been the people that have been just absolutely gutted and lambasted over the last couple of years, you know, satirists and comedians, you know, yeah. and, and the, the people who have gone after them, it's jaw dropping, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's uh, it is such a playbook out of history that, um, that you would 
someone like a Hitler or a Stalin or a Pol Pot would would go after the satirists because when you're doing fucked up things, there's a lot of satire that's available there. And if you're mm-hmm. otherwise doing things that are good and reputable and reasonable, there's just not a lot of satire that's available. So there mm-hmm. is an asymmetry there. And so it, it but it's uh, it's appalling to me that that people will go after humorists and satirists and whatnot. So. Uh, on the back end, I've, I've, we're, we're not wealthy, but we're not poor, and so I've donated money and, and put money into the humorists and satirists that I believe in, and uh, you know, I, I act as a patron to those folks as best as I can because they need to stay in the fight and and do what they're doing. You know, people like JP Sears and, right. and Zuby and and stuff like that. Like, I'm going to support those people until. I myself am living under a bridge and have no no capacity to support them. Um, the fact that we moved to Montana and and we did this in part because of the jujitsu community that's here. Like, there's three schools within the same organization, and and all told, between the three schools, there's like 1,200 members, and so it's a huge percentage of the the local population here. Like the Flathead Greater Flathead Valley is hundred thousand people for this huge area, but you know, only 20,000 people within Kalispell, which is where we live. And, uh, that, that in real life community is just amazing because if I need help with something, it doesn't fixing my car, fixing my house, um, you know, what, whatever, there's somebody that is an expert on it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's enough people that have interest in like diet and lifestyle and everything that I can provide some help that there's some, some tradable stuff there. So I've made myself valuable and, and available for the, the people in the community there. And we talk to our kids constantly about this stuff, you know, like human capital and social capital and, and being part of the community. And so we have been thinking more and more about these parallel structures that can operate outside of you know, the, the kind of mainstream. One thing that we did is um, we bought a food dehydrator. And when we make a meal, we will just kind of do a double meal sometimes. And my wife will dehydrate that. And the way that we do it, in theory, this stuff is good for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so if the shit hits the fan, then we're going to have a, a cache of food. And I, I also, I managed to get a deal on like a couple of hundred of the the little airline single shot like booze containers and it's a screwy story how i was able to do this but i got a ton of them for a suspiciously low price and i just have those banked because like in good times people drink and in bad times people drink more so i've i've been squirreling a little bit of like tradable easily fungible things like food and booze to to be able to you know if i need some help with something it's like hey i'll you know if you help me with this i'll you know three, three bottles of booze for you, whatever. And, and so we've been doing some things like that. And, uh, you know, also, um, that's good thinking. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that, I, that, that transacts and is probably a lot more appealing than like silver coins. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I, I probably sound super paranoid and crazy, at least to some people, but that's me. I had a, <laughs> I had a really cool opportunity. I got to live with a Cambodian family for the better part of a year and they had escaped the Khmer Rouge. And most people aren't familiar with the the Khmer Rouge, but they were this communist uh, dictatorship that took over Cambodia, like right, right around the the end of the, uh, the Vietnam war. 
And um, this is where like the book in the film, The Killing Fields is based off of, mm. because a huge percentage of their population was was drug out in the fields and was was murdered. And people would buy their way into Thailand by sifting through the skulls of people who had been killed and get uh, silver and, and gold fillings out of these skulls and, and piece together enough money to buy their way out of the country. But um, and this whole thing started. Uh, it, it was identity politics that Pol Pot used to uh, get one neighbor to kill other neighbors. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, because they were fairly racially and culturally homogenized. And so they found some very what, what I think most people in the West would consider very nominal differences between different folks and different groups. And they were able to exploit it to a degree that it was justifiable to kill people in the millions. And so I got to meet this family and travel with them and learned about this stuff. And, and uh, they had a, a donut shop, a Chinese food place and a, a cleaners in South central LA, right around the, the time of the Rodney King riots. And their place didn't get looted because when they moved here, in addition to to starting businesses and, and kind of bootstrapping themselves up, they bought armament and they learned how to use it. And so when people started burning things down, they got up on the roof of their building and basically threatened to shoot people if they came near their building. So the buildings around them got burned down and theirs didn't. And they said that they would never, ever, ever live somewhere that they couldn't own, you know, personal, personal firearms. So... That was a big eye opener for me. And then when I was working at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center as a, a lab tech, there was a guy there that was a lab tech. He's actually a physician from uh, Yugoslavia, but his, his English was just bad enough that he kept failing the board exams to be able to be a practicing physician. And so he was stuck being a lab tech, but he had escaped out of Yugoslavia during the, the, you know, the civil war that had occurred there. And he described the same type of thing that it was a, uh, it, he didn't use these terms, but I recognize them as such. Now it was identity politics. that was played to, mm -hmm. to get people who had otherwise lived in comparative harmony for, for generations to be willing to murder each other by the hundreds of thousands. And um, so these things were really impactful to me. And so we, we kind of take some cues from what the folks in these situations did uh, that, that allowed them to survive, you know, building the social capital and, and, you know, storing things that are of value to, to people when, when resources become scarce and whatnot. And we talked to our girls about this stuff a fair amount, like not, not all the gory details. We don't want them living in abject terror about the world and, and whatnot, but we, we talk enough about, you know, that there are people that, um, really believe that freedom is kind of the most important thing. And that sometimes, freedom can bring some, some unknowns to it and can, can have some, some potential dangers attached to it, but that some people feel that that is a reasonable um, trade-off. And then there are other people that feel like uh, no amount of danger is acceptable and that uh, no amount of loss of freedoms to gain some perceived, you know, safety, it, it, that that's always a worthwhile thing. And that the, those, mm -hmm. those two things are really potentially at loggerheads. And we try to do a lot of critical thinking discussions around those those two worldviews and i really try to present it in a way that it's not like here are these idiots over here and we're the smart people and and there you go because um i i see folks who their their kids may parrot say like kind of a a conservative 
you know, position, but they can't really articulate it from a critical thinking perspective. They certainly can't articulate why the people on the other side of the story might insist that they wear masks or shut down their their restaurant during the, you know, a pandemic or, you know, should do all these things for the greater good. They can't articulate what it is that's, that this person is trying to get across. And so in a basic game theory perspective, like they don't know their opponent. And I think right. that that's incredibly dangerous. Like, it, you know, yeah. you 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 should be able to articulate the position of your opponent as good or better than they can. And that's the best opportunity that you have for, for besting those people, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, so those great. are the things that, you know, some of the things that we, we do and we try to have with all that stuff said, we also just try to have as much fun as we possibly can, because you just don't know, like, you know, life is short. This last year I've had more personal friends die from just stuff than I've ever seen. And I'm going to turn 50 in a couple of days. And I think some of that is just getting older and you hit this period of time where, um, the people, you know, start dying and they start dying at ever accelerating rates. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that we really work to not do is just sit and contemplate like the implosion of the world and everything. We just try to live good and enjoy ourselves while also putting a little bit of, uh, thought to, to, you know, protecting downsides and, and risk exposure. Yeah. Um, last kind of question is we, well, uh, last two questions, the food dehydrator you mentioned, uh, what kind did you end up getting? It's the medium sized harvest, right. And we opted for the oilless compressor with it. Um, and the whole thing is not cheap, but that's why I drive a modest car so I can have a really awesome food dehydrator. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, thank you for checking on that. Totally. And, and then last thing, whether this is, you know, whether you want to call it God's plan or depending on your, your, your spiritual affiliation or lack thereof, let's say all of the things that have been going on in the world for the past few years are for the good of humanity and for our evolution. Um, what, what do you see taking place this next decade that will, uh, reflect a brighter future for our species? Man, what, would you, what would you like to see? Um, I think it would be good if we saw more decentralization versus consolidation. I think that a lot of the problem that we are seeing right now is this movement towards globalization. You know, this mm-hmm. is part of the, I think, part of the problem with like big food and the reason why they want to couch uh, animal husbandry is this this big evil because if we get everybody eating kind of modified soy products like they own the intellectual property on our food. You know, mm-hmm. Bill Gates is now the largest owner of farmland in the in the United States or the world. I forget which yeah. one. And and uh, and he's really a big advocate of this like fake food stuff. And I see decentralization and regionalization being uh, a critical feature. Um, the United States, in particular, is just so big and has so many different kind of cultural values that I I think that what's happening is we're the powers that be are trying to force a singular narrative on people. And and maybe this is even some of the pushback that we've seen out of like people in the Middle East where like Western encroachment is is kind of undermining some of their their lifestyles and whatnot. And they're kind of like, we don't want any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I just see there there are too many differing values and ways of looking at the world just within the United States for a singular 
worldview to take hold unless you're going to expunge a bunch of the population. Yep. And so my my hope is that we, you know, and I, I think the founding of the United States was that we would be much more governed at the local and state level than at the federal level. And there's been mm-hmm. this long running, you know, battle between like federal jurisdiction versus state and local and all that stuff. And I think it would be good if we could amicably get to a spot where certain places have differing values and they differ a lot. Like maybe some places have abortion and maybe some places don't in the United States, just as, a, as an example. And I, I'm just pulling that out as one of those like super mm-hmm. polarizing things. But um, maybe some places feel like every cold and flu season, you need to shut down your whole economy and stick your kids in, in uh, uh, masks and do online education. And maybe some places don't believe mm-hmm. in that. And that should be okay. And we should be able to run those experiments. You know, if we have 50 different states doing different things, we, when Bill Clinton did uh, a welfare reform process, he had the states do it first so that there were 50 different reaction vessels experimenting. Some of those experiments were absolute disasters, and some of them were really pretty good. And the pretty good stuff, like eight years later, were adopted and taken in at more of the federal level. And, and most people would say that it was, you know, net net an improvement off of what had been happening before. And so I'm a big fan of decentralization and lots of experimentation. And my hope is that we move away from this, this brink of heading into like a, a globalized culture. Um, yeah, yeah we're glo- we're networked. We have global trade. We can benefit from each other. But I think that there's going to be a remarkable backlash and, and problems. I don't want to say this. I think it would be good for everybody concerned, even though some people are going to lose some control and lose some power at like that federal and international level. But they think it'll be good because we'll still have an intact global a, a civilization instead mm-hmm. of like civil war and, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff breaking out. So my, my hope is that we see a more decentralized, more local governance and more of the, the uh, values and sensibilities of the local populace reflected in their governance would, would be a, a big hope of mine. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. And I think it's important to look around and see if the people in your area align with you in terms of values and and morality and the direction that you want things to go. Like our, our family grew up outside of Chicago and, you know, it's become clear that this area is not that. So we got land in North Carolina and we're going to be building off-grid power, you know, we're, our homes are going to be ran on off-grid power. We're going to have gardens and greenhouses and animals and, you know, water sources. And we're going right. to, we know we're already meeting people in the local community that, you know, that we're building relationships with that have skills that we don't have and that can help in, in these types of situations. And I think just looking around and being objective, like are the people around me, do they, do they align in terms of where I'd like to see things go? And, and, you know, we're getting involved with, I've reached out to all five of the guys who are running for local sheriff to figure out mm. what are, what are their values and how can I be there on election day to help the ones that, align with my values, you know, and, and, and making that migration from, from federal politics to local politics and, you know, knowing your sheriff and knowing your, either your school board or homeschooling your kids like you've done, which I think is, is the way of the future. So, um, I wanted to thank you for everything that you've done, uh, all the, all the knowledge and wisdom that you've put out there and, um, and, 
just being a, uh, a a source of light and hope and leading by example throughout all of this. And um, guys, if if you've gotten value from this episode, you know, please go to drinklmnt.com and uh, you know pick up pick up some element, grab Rob's books, Sacred Cow and the Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And um, Rob, anything else that you'd like to leave the people with or where they could stay up to date on things you're working on, where I think you're, you're moving off of some of the social platforms or at least recognizing the, uh, the finiteness of those. Um, where can people stay up to date with stuff that you're working on and where will you be in, yeah, in the near it, future? I, I did spin up a sub stack, but at robwolf.com and then drinkelement.com uh, are probably the, the main places to, to track me down. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I've enjoyed our conversation and uh, I think our listeners have as well. Awesome. Thank you. What's up, guys? Anthony here. And one of my favorite things to do is helping men and women like you feel what it's like living life with the body you've always wanted and all day energy that starts the moment you wake up and doesn't quit. Over the past decade, we've created a proprietary health assessment that helps me to identify the unique toxicities and deficiencies that are holding you back from the life that you deserve. And what we've discovered in doing this now with thousands of CEOs, executives, professional athletes, businessmen, Hollywood celebs, and entrepreneurs is that there is always room for improvement and optimization. So if you're looking for help with this stuff and you'd like to see if you're a fit to work with me one-on-one, this program is usually full year-round with a waiting list, but we just had a few spots open up. And I wanted to make this available to the listeners of the Biohacking Secrets show first. So what you want to do if you want to apply is head over to biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. That's www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G. Fill out the short application form. And if you're pre-approved, you'll be given the opportunity to book a time to connect with someone on our team and see if it's a fit. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. I look forward to potentially going on this journey together.